Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I ardently campaign for later high school start times. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I think stats should replace calculus as senior math. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking Ginger Snap Pastry Stout from the Toppling Goliath Brewing Company. This is like Pop Rocks. It's very dark. I, I don't know why I had Ginger Snap in my head as being a lighter beer. This is not light. This is this is dark like a Guinness. Uh, the, there's a little redness in the head. The smell. I, I like the smell. It's sweet. It's it smells like a ginger snap. That's what it smells like. I I don't know if it's my nose or it's just a faint smell, but I can't smell anything today, I guess. So I don't I don't, I'm not enjoying the smell the smell experience. I'm just noticing you said you aren't smelling anything. Oh, well see, I am smelling it. It's just really faint. What are we doing today, Dr. Ralph? Universal Design for Learning represents a framework that can impact every part of the school. We read research looking at how UDL can contribute to more effective MTSS Tier 1 interventions if teachers have an accurate understanding of UDL. Later, we look at an eye-tracking study to examine how students process feedback differently. The authors discuss feedback literacy, and we brainstorm how we could help students become more feedback literate in our classrooms. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read Universal Design for Learning Within an Integrated Multi-Tiered System of Support. This was written by Elizabeth Thomas, Erica Lemke, and Allison Gruner-Gandhi. This was published in Learning Disabilities Research and Practice in 2023. Why did you keep uh, this paper, Ralph? Yeah, so... So as I was reviewing, I was searching for material. I, I even queued and removed papers into, into the show as I was trying to figure out what we would read. Uh, and I actually, I just got back from the UDL International Conference just a couple of weeks ago. And so it'd been a little while since we've talked about UDL. We've done it before. Of course, you know, we did the fundamental UDL episode several years ago. We talked to um, Dr. Boyson about um, his critique of UDL, not, you know, a year or two ago. But like, I really wanted to get back into uh, some existing implementation research around UDL. And then I saw this paper. And longtime listeners of the show will know we did an episode focused on the implementation of MTSS, which is that multi-tiered system of supports in the title. And we did a paper a long, long time ago. This was episode 35. And it was a paper written by Jennifer Ng, who looked at the realities of how implementing MTSS and specifically, air quotes, data-driven MTSS responses uh, was terrible. It was awful for the school. It produced lots and lots of marginalizing and harmful outcomes. And that really sort of crystallized my professional opinion of MTSS in the realities of how it gets done. But that was a while ago. So I saw this paper and thought to myself, it's probably time to revisit MTSS do I still really dislike it? Because it comes up a lot. There's a lot of folks who talk about it uh, in positive lights. And I'm always like, mm, read Jennifer Ring's paper. Uh, but 
I wanted to revisit it. So this was an opportunity to hit UDL again and give myself a chance to reconsider my general posture towards MTSS, which I have done. All right. Yeah. So that's why. I did not enjoy this paper. Uh, I I also did not enjoy this paper. Um, <clears throat> and I think some of the reasons that I didn't enjoy this paper was merely stylistic. Uh, I have a complicated relationship with the phrase efficiency in education. And the problem is anytime you use efficiency, not anytime, I think most times that people use efficiency, they are taking for granted what is what we're minimizing and what we're maximizing. And I think we that gets taken for granted. And so this word gets used in conversations and in different venues and in different situations. And we don't ever dig into, when you say efficiency this time, what are we minimizing or what are we maximizing? I think the word is fine. And there are plenty of times that you can use it in education completely appropriately, even when you're talking about learning outcomes and objectives. I think that's absolutely okay. But since we as a community don't do the work to disambiguate it when we use it, it means too much, too often, too little, and can, I think reinforce some misconceptions in education because I think that efficiency for a student, efficiency for a teacher, efficiency for an administration, efficiency for a district employee, and efficiency for a board of education member, I think all of those people will be operating from a different perspective of what is efficiency and what, what we value as efficient. And so when I see it in context in this research, I'm like, well, okay, I kind of know what they mean. And I, I'm sure that it is it is a fine word choice, but it just makes me feel uncomfortable when I see it. And that has nothing to do with the content of this paper, but it makes me feel uncomfortable when I read the paper. And the same thing is true of the term fidelity, which also appears many times Oh, in they talk about, which is like the centerpiece of the last paper yeah. we read those several years ago about MTSS and the authors were like, fidelity, fidelity, fidelity. And I'm but, like, oh. but then they defined it in a way that's like, not okay. That's fine. But it has these other contexts that make it problematic. And I just, it just, so this paper, I didn't sit well with me because of the language choices, which is different than the intent and the content. Well, but language shapes our thought and especially yeah. communicates our values. Like it opens with a discussion of PBIS and I'm like, oh my gosh, that we're starting here when we're talking about equitable implementation and PBIS is where we start. There's a link in the show notes for some of the racist impacts of PBIS implementation. And so my experience making my way through this paper was consistently seeing a declaration of values and priorities that I agree with, that resonate with me. Yeah. And then practices and language use that strongly, strong, that I strongly disagree with, you know, throwing. And so I was had a really hard time reconciling all of that. And, and one of the things about the paper is that they focus exclusively on tier one instruction of the MTSS construct and tier one instruction instruction is your basic classroom experience instruction so we're not even getting into any uh, like we we use mtss over and over and over and over again in the paper but we're really talking about standard classroom experience without discussing the responsive levels of intervention we don't talk about tier two we don't talk about th tier three we talk exclusively about tier one the entire time in this paper 
and and so some of the problems that we were critical about MTSS aren't really relevant in the context of this paper because it's not what this paper is exploring. But so it's weird. It pulls me in all these kinds of directions. Yeah. So I think a general summary of the work is that they're describing universal design for learning or UDL is sort of this, this large framework that can touch all of the operations of a, of a school. And they were focused on elementary schools. And MTSS is also a large, it's a system, right? So it also touches lots of operations in the school. And so those two things could mutually contribute to one another, but very often in practice are implemented sort of in parallel. And they don't talk to each other as much as they could or they should uh, to be as effective as they could be. Uh, and so that that makes sense to me. That's a, that's a very reasonable claim. Let's not do things, let's not implement policies that aren't talking to each other. Absolutely. You got me so far. Yeah. And so their work was looking at how does implementation of UDL um, look different across different schools and how does that also align with or statistically associate with differences in the way they're implementing MTSS and specifically the activities that they're doing at tier one of MTSS. I think that's the gist of what they were looking at. Uh, in their description of universal design for learning, they uh, they had a section where they essentially described that um, for, uh, for UDL to be successful, teachers need to uh, exhibit flexibility and have autonomy in their execution of instruction. And I... I highlighted that and said, top shelf, gold star, premium content. That is the point. Um, and though uh, I don't want to, uh, I'm, not, I'm not knocking UDL, uh, but I'm saying any approach, any framework, any philosophy, <clears throat> any set of practices <clears throat> are going to not be effective if the teacher is not flexible and has no autonomy. Yeah, that was great. I felt like just as I felt uncomfortable with some of the other language choices, I felt awesome about those language choices. And that's where they pulled me back in. And that's why this paper was kind of a yo-yo for me. There's a, there's, they have several places throughout the course of the paper reference the importance of differentiation, the value of differentiating. But then in their interviews, they used a 100% scripted approach. And didn't have any dialogue. Yeah. And I'm like, I, you said in your own paper. That, and like in qualitative research, it's super common to have a semi-structured approach to be able to respond to participant comments. So you can pull out their whole story rather than interposing your own expectations and structure on the on the interview. And so that's, that's materially shaping the findings. You know, the, one of the critiques or one of the proposed um, inconsistencies between MTSS and UDL is that MTSS is highly ev you know, evidence-driven and UDL might not be because of those some of the critiques that are existing in the field. And yet we're not acknowledging a pretty robust body of research showing the potential harms and misapplications of MTSS. They did not cite Dr. Ng's paper, which seems super relevant here. <laughs> And so that mismatch of differential standards and selective memory or selective interpretation, it makes it really hard for me to agree with some of the findings that are inconsistent with my current understanding because the pathway to getting there is not robust. Well, let's go, let, let's jump to that. Um, what were, 
the findings? Well, they it looked like they ran some Bayesian analysis, which is super cool. And in that regard, I'd love to learn more about it because I didn't get a chance to train in Bayesian methods uh, and I wanted to. That was one of my early hopes. So that's cool. They're using some interesting um, analytical techniques. But what they found was that the schools in their sample separated into two categories, into two groups based on a, a, like a cluster analysis. I would, I'd like to discuss, if we can, the role of autonomy in the execution of UDL. Because what was true about all of the schools involved is that all of them were MTSS framework schools. All of them, every school was implementing MTSS framework. So the real variable here is, do the teachers in these schools also consider UDL principles while they're working in an MTS framework or do they not? And then it was, well, what are the, what are the factors associated with the, the teachers who say they are doing UDL? And what are the factors associated with the teachers who say they are not doing UDL? And I think that that is where the, the, uh, the conversation, uh, the intended conversation is. So even though this is set up as a mixed method study and there's all these interesting Bayesian methods for analysis, I think the it's, it is in its essence a robust qualitative study looking at what's being said between the teachers in these two groups, groups that are implementing UDL to some degree and groups that are not implementing UDL to any meaningful degree. And one of the things that jumped out at me about what teachers were describing was that the report of how much do you know and understand UDL is actually backwards from how I would have hoped it would have been with the teachers who are in the UDL implementation category much more substantially saying, we don't, we don't fully understand UDL yet. There's a lot here. We need more professional learning. We need more practice versus the teachers who are not implementing UDL. Like, yeah, we understand what UDL is. And in their comments, they consistently coded their comments as they're describing UDL and they're describing it wrong. They're yeah. making many errors in how they understand UDL to be manifesting and they don't know that they don't know. Uh, I mean, uh, they specifically cited one example is that when they discussed UDL, the teachers responded with a confident misconception that UDL was equated with matching an individual's learning style. And so if I thought UDL was matching to an individual's learning style, I also would not do it and say that I would not do it and say that I do not want to do it. So there, like, if you have that conflation, then rejecting it is the wise thing to do. So uh, that that was an interesting. So that education piece is clearly important. Another thing that was different about those two environments is that the uh, the schools that reported having more UDL instruction also had fewer curricular mandates, and the schools that reported not having UDL instruction had a greater set of curricular mandates expectations for what you will execute in the classroom and how the more of those that were there, the less UDL there was. And I, that was very compelling to me. Well, and I think that that brings us back originally to the enacting your values. You know, how, how do we actually practice as we are advocating for the things we seek to promote? If I feel really strongly that we should support students as they navigate learning and, and 
meeting their needs and I've got options and choices and I can I can make informed decisions about what I need in any given learning experience and practicing skills differently from my peers, even though we're pursuing similar learning goals. All of that's great. So we are going to mandate a linear curriculum for our teachers so that they must meet a standardized competency threshold by a given date that has no flexibility. Those things are at odds with one another. And our actions declare our values. And so you can say all the live long day that flexibility and autonomy and agency are essential. But if we don't make them essential to the way we move through the world, we will not make progress. And I think these findings are very clear about that. Just reinforcing these findings, as they looked at the frequency of comments about barriers to UDL implementation, right after knowledge of UDL in their top five is also generating staff buy-in. I think staff buy-in comes from, do they believe in the philosophical underpinnings of what we're doing? And we can only believe in it if we're seeing it manifest with the folks who are advocating. Which is why, so like the MTSS kind of, component of this is I feel like maybe the point of this paper they might be they might be on our side strongly this paper might not be for us Ralph this paper might be for people who are in rigid MTSS modes and this is the paper to worm flexibility and responsiveness from a UDL perspective trying to wedge it into someone's rigid, like, fidelity MGS, M- like, um, what, what's, what, what, yeah, the MTSS perspective. Like, if I am a, fid- like, rigid fidelity MTSS person, and then I read this paper that's saying, yes, MTSS is good, and UDL is also good. Is there any way we can bring them together? Well, we need to do this for tier one MTSS, and UDL is a great way to approach tier one MTSS with, flexibility and responsibility as our uh, foundational start to this rigid process that we are going to execute with fidelity. We need to rigidly implement flexibility and responsiveness as uh, the basis by which we interact with students. I feel like maybe this is a Trojan horse into an MTSS administration. I don't know. Like, it's not for us because we don't like it. But if I love that language and I'm super excited about MTSS, this might be the the seed that changes my concept of what I'm doing. That's uh, that is, I want that. I want that. I hadn't really, I hadn't really thought about that explanation because, because the MTSS, I mean, it, maybe it featured more in the way that they scripted their interviews or whatever, but like, it seemed unnecessary entirely. Like all they're finding was like, what's the difference between UDL schools and not UDL schools? That's the whole yeah, thing, as the, best I can tell. The MTSS component was held constant, right? right? It's not the variable of interest. It's not the treatment group. It's not... But, like, their questions, I think, were probably focused on your experiences with Tier 1. And so yeah. that's the relevant context, probably. And that doesn't matter whether you're an MTSS school or not, because all yeah. initial experiences are Tier 1 instruction. So if you're like, our Tier 1 is not where we want it to be, and we're seeing some of these consequences that they describe, right? If your tier one is not adequate, then you've got more students who eventually need tier two and tier three, and those are resource intensive. And 
times are tough right now in education. And so we're, we're not able to do the job there either. And that's a problem. And so we've got to get upstream. We've got to do a better job with tier zero and tier one. And so maybe UDL is an opportunity to be able to introduce greater flexibility, greater autonomy, greater agency, that's which awesome. come with great things. Yeah. Uh, and that doesn't disqualify my love of MTSS and fidelity and yeah. rigor. Right. So maybe, maybe it's a, a Trojan horse inoculating with new language. I don't know what to tell you either. I would tell you. That's it. Thank you for listening. None of that was for listeners, but every once in a while, I need an opportunity to shout at somebody who at least looks up. <laughs> hey, man, it's a, I appreciate you. You know things about stuff. Sitting in my kitchen like, what? Everybody else is just doesn't even look up anymore. They just entirely well, ignore me. Uh, what's, one of the things that was interesting uh, that they did bring out that's a subtle conceptualization that actually dovetails with something else that I'm reading for, for my district. I'm reading some... I'm reading about reading instruction specifically overall, but also targeted at the secondary level for individuals that are not at grade level for reading. Um, and one of the things, this concept about fidelity that that book brought up is that there, is, and it goes back to the education piece because let's say you've got a highly experienced, truly responsive, comfortable in their autonomy and flexible teacher. So we're talking about we're talking about a good a good teacher. And I'm not going to quantify that any more than just, you know, the one all of the principals want to hire. There's an applicant and every, they, they apply at three high schools and everybody wants to hire this candidate because they know this is a great teacher. That great teacher, if they misunderstand something fundamental about the mechanics of learning or the or, or the relationships of the intervention, then they could make some flexible autonomous choices that um, do not yield beneficial results. And so fidelity comes into play as this quality control, for when you have failed to teach or train your teachers the philosophical, psychological, and mechanical components of your intervention. If, if you do not have the philosophical components, which we they refer to as teacher buy-in, they do not have the mechanical components, you do not have the technical components understood by your teachers, then you can band-aid that a little bit by demanding fidelity um, to a script. But what's better is to improve your philosophical and mechanical uh, instruction and training of those things so that you can trust them to use their autonomy and flexibility to, to support those results. And, and, that, and that's what this paper tries to do by defining fidelity as a flexible, responsive thing because you have to understand UDL, which is a super complex thing. And so it, it's, it's, it's like this nested layer of, of permission to be flexible. Well, and so I appreciate you saying that and it pushes me to put this in an ecological context. If I am an administrator and I am trying to help students who are struggling more than I have seen them struggle in my career because of gestures broadly 
And then I remember that teacher turnover is elevating Mm -hmm. and it's above historical rates right now. And in Kansas, we already had a teacher shortage. The national picture is complicated. We did that episode, but in Kansas, it's real. And so when you think about investing in your teachers and you put that in a context where teacher turnover is untenably high, to modify a quote from a mutual friend of ours, we won't have any old teachers. Well, if I can't train teachers because they won't be here next year, what can I do? Yeah. And that's an awful, awful question. And so I, I do not yield <laughs> that we need to invest in teachers, help them get better. Being able to better meet the needs of students will be satisfying and they will feel more motivation. And if you can protect their time to be able to invest in that in ways that are sustainable and without creating an onerous workload, then your turnover problems will reduce. Because that was also on this study's list of top problems is overburdened and burnt out. But I would do well to acknowledge administrators who say, yeah, you're all well and good sitting over there in Lawrence's kitchen talking about how I should invest in teachers and all of my teachers are leaving. So what do I do? Uh, And that is a reasonable question. And I would do well to hold space for that. For our second segment, we read The I-Mind of Processing Written Feedback, Unraveling How Students Read and Use Feedback for Revision. This was written by Rinska Bauer and Kim Dirks. This was published in Learning and Instruction 2023. The So I queued this up um, because the methods were interesting. So being able to do some eye tracking is cool. You know, we, we every once in a while we read these biometric um, measure studies, and I think that it's interesting to think about uh, using them. And so that was cool to me. And last month's episode, we, you know, we had that lengthy discussion with a couple of guests about, um, about helping students engage with writing in more productive ways, and particularly in helping them focus on the revision process. And so this did feel like a good dovetail um, to be able to follow up and talk about what do we know about the ways students engage with feedback? Yeah, their data collection methods were neat. Uh, they even tried some weird stuff that I haven't seen before that then then they were like, yeah, we're not sure that that was a great idea. Um, uh, Because in addition to eye tracking uh, with the digital uh, feedback, they also um, did a segment where they had the participants think out loud, like any part of their internal narrative as they're processing this feedback, just say it out loud. Uh, And that had some interesting consequences Uh, And then they ended up in their second study, because this is a two-study paper, they ended up not repeating that because they said, oh, yeah, that cognitive overload. Well, and also they had the the people recording prompt them to read out loud, to speak out loud when they weren't. And that's going to disrupt whatever things are happening. So, like, though it was a neat idea. So so they were taking some risks in data collection. Like, how can we get more information about, about students' feedback processes. Let's track their eyes. Let's read their mind by having them speak out loud. Okay, that doesn't work, but let's track their eyes. And so, you know, they tried new things and I really appreciate that. Uh, The too long didn't read on this for me is uh, there are differences in how students process feedback. 
And that's the end of it. Like, that's it. That's that's what we can walk away with this. There's not a lot of other shoulds. There's some maybe suggestions for further explorations. They consistently found across the two studies that students kind of neatly fit into one of two categories for how they process feedback. The first category that I'm going to describe as the more naive or more novice version of processing feedback is to read it like a novel is what I am saying. You sit down and you start at the beginning and you read the words in order until you get to the end. And then you do whatever you're going to do with it. They, they call that linear processing. And then there was another category of student who, when they got the feedback, it was much more nonlinear. And I think they call it described as like global. global. The, well, there's actually two axes here there's the linear and cyclical behaviors the linear being the the novel and the cyclical being the jumping around between feedback things but then there is the local and global those are also two different but didn't they all the groups really lived in only two of those four quadrants it was pretty unusual to have cyclical but local only uh they they had three clusters they had linear this is as as i read it they had uh linear and local cyclical and local cyclical and global they did not have any linear global that is correct those that quadrant was unpopulated but um they did have cyclical and local i see what you're seeing yep acknowledged that is a better description of their categories thank you uh yeah so the 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 cyclical was sort of looking at feedback as a whole and saying, okay, they wrote this here. They wrote this there. Do these connect? Is there patterns in the feedback? What does it mean? They spent a little more time jumping around, but then the really interesting thing came when how they applied that feedback. If they applied the feedback, the, the local actors only applied the feedback to the places where the comments were made. So they did not review their paper as a whole. They reviewed that section where the comment was made. Whereas the global actors were really looking at holistic f- the feedback holistically as well as their paper holistically and recognizing that changes made in one would could be strengthened in other places or you can strengthen the change you make here by making earlier changes and they would reorganize their paper or they would rewrite certain sections or certain segments or they would add to their paper. Uh, not just to fix the problem. It wasn't, it, it, yeah, they weren't just fixing the problem. They were re-communicating. Uh, and that, you know, as a teacher, that's in my heart where I want all students to be. I want there them to be at that place. Um, and they are not all that place. Some look at it as a checklist and they may do the checklist out of order, but at the end of the day, it's still a checklist. And one of the things that was in their empirical findings that I really want to draw out because I liked it. Uh, I saw often like, heck, your numbers, but like, I liked these numbers in their results and specifically table three. And they show a significant increase in the amount of time that students are doing this deep feedback processing. So the, where they're jumping around, they're thinking about how this comment might influence other places where I did the thing, even though the comment wasn't there. And you saw significant increases in their time spent dwelling on lots of different places in their work and revisiting different places in lots of different work. In fact, the, the majority of their, of their um, comparisons were significant, except the amount of time they spent dwelling on the feedback. 
And that was definitively the same between groups. And so it's a really nice, I think, opportunity to dispel a misconception coming out of this, that they should just spend more time on the feedback. That's not it. That is definitely not it. They spent the same amount of time dwelling on the feedback. Now, they revisited the feedback more often. That's definitely true. But they didn't spend any more time dwelling on the feedback. It's what they were doing with the feedback and the time they spent in the other sections of the work that was increased both in time and in quality, I'm going to say. And so I think that's a nice, uh, it's a a really good setup for a recommendation that they didn't get into until late in the paper, but they described feedback literacy. And I'll tell you what, that resonated with me. And I think that this study shows a need for being more explicit about how to find the deeper meanings in the comments that we make. And I think that that's consistent with some of what we were talking about with the tiny writing last month. In my mind, I framed it as a fixed versus growth mindset approach to the feedback. If you're looking at the feedback are, these are the changes I need to make a better grade and achieve the task. I I characterize that close to a fixed mindset version of this. Whereas what does this feedback mean? What does it mean about my writing habits? What does it mean about my writing decisions? How can I improve my writing, not just in this paper, but in the future as I'm applying this to be more effective as a communicator in this domain? That, That would be a different set of approaches to using that feedback. If this feedback is going to help me be a better writer, I'm going to be thinking about it a lot more in a more complex schema. If I need to achieve, if I need to resolve this feedback so that I can get a better score, I'm going to have a different approach. And I think there's some, they didn't discuss fixed or growth mindset anywhere in this paper at all. Uh, but the, the idea of it, those two attitudes fueling how we approach feedback is something that I would love to see explored by researchers in the future. I would love to see correlations between exhibitions of fixed and growth mindset and how in students respond to feedback. I would love to see that. And I, I think about the feedback that I've given in my own life because I've given feedback in my life. And I think it can be easy to be affected by the curse of knowing for folks who are effective in writing in whatever their domain, whether you're talking about scientific writing, you're talking about creating fiction, whatever it is, it can be easy to say, I gave you this comment, think more about that comment. I gave you this comment, but you didn't really process it. I gave you this feedback, read my feed, go back and read my feedback again. And none of those statements reveal to a student who does not know what global feedback looks like, what deep processing looks like, none of those statements inform them about what you are asking to be different. They discuss it in their methods, but I think it is really relevant here in the discussion that when you give people feedback for someone else's work and say, how do you think this student should resolve their, revise their paper in light of this feedback? They behave in a consistent manner with each other. Like, People tend to respond to other people's feedback similarly to other people. But when you're responding to feedback to your own work, there's wide varieties of how people respond, which means there's this effect for this like third 
third party feedback psychology that is not maybe it is well maybe it is well understood but it wasn't expounded in this paper and i just heard about it for the first time so i don't know anything about that but maybe if i want maybe i have to teach the skill of deep feedback processing directly through scaffolded events. Maybe I should start saying, hey, before we take this test next week, let me show you a sample of student work who took this test four years ago. This is the, how they did it. And this is the feedback that I gave them. And your paper might look something like this. When I give feedback, I give feedback kind of like this. How do you think this student should prepare for a retake in light of the feedback that I've given. Like maybe I should be starting to provide those kinds of experiences to my kids. Maybe I should be starting to respond by providing students, not just what feedback do you think this, this student sample deserves, but here's a student sample. Here's the feedback I've given it as a table, write the revisions you agree think would, would be an improved version of this. Like the scaffolding we assume, I assume, I have assumed for 11 years that when I provide them feedback, they will, I will use, either use it to improve their work or ask me to disambiguate the feedback. But both of those, both of those are not teaching. Both of those assume they have the skill. And this paper is saying, mm, students process feedback differently. And these were these are pre-master's students. Yeah. So these are students who are older and have more experience than any K-12 student at all. Absolutely. And it was the need was prevalent among them. So I'm going to go ahead and just scale that down and say that that's true of my students as well. And so... Uh, though, though this this year, man, this year, Ralph, I mean, there's been a lot of like, I'm going to implement that immediately. I'm going to implement that immediately. I'm going to implement that immediately. I know that this is the kind of one that I've got to put on the back burner for a while, but I could see this one coming back to me in the future too. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, so you've got your test. Before I give you your test backs, let's look at what responding to feedback looks like. Let's do let's do an activity where this is an example of some feedback I gave two years ago with a student. How do you think they should respond to this? What would you do to respond to this? Talk amongst each other. Like I could make a lesson before I give the tests back. How could we respond with feedback? How do we practice responding to feedback? And that is, that feels meaty and valuable. The Well, and one of the images that they shared was from their eye tracking work. I think that's another piece of the value from some of these direct process measurements that they showed in their lit review are pretty lacking in the field right now. Is you say, you want me to do global feedback, but like, I'm struggling, like, what does that mean? Like, I don't go back to the beginning, like, fine, I guess, I don't know what that means. They have an image that literally shows a map of where the eyes of students go when they're exhibiting either local or deep feedback processing. And I think being able to show students, whoa, those two maps look pretty different. And maybe I can see myself in doing the local feedback thing. And I just, I see how different the deep feedback processing looks. And that might get me to the equilibrium place that I really need to be to be ready to change some of my behaviors. And it actually makes me return to their thoughts for the Think Aloud. Because the Think Aloud didn't work as a research tool. 
That does not mean it wouldn't be valuable as a modeling tool. If I, as an instructor, said, everybody, for the next 90 seconds, I'm going to respond to this feedback as though I was the author processing this feedback, and I'm going to tell you what I am doing, and I can do that with preparation, and I can do that with intention, and I can do that with, um, with expertise. And so I can say, I see that they have prompted me to consider a new adjective on this word. I noticed that this adjective doesn't have very much description, and I've used it three times in this paragraph. So even though they've only prompted me here, I'm now noticing I need to do better imagery. Now let's go back to, I know these four places, I have important characters. I need to provide better imagery. I checked the first one. Yep, do better there. Check the second one. That was pretty good. Check the third one. I need to do better there. And so now I have three opportunities for revision from this one comment that was only in this one place. And I think just narrating that process can be really useful to a student who has never done that before. Early in the paper, they... Uh... They, they uh, mentioned one of the pitfalls that teachers can fall into by providing too much feedback. And I have, I have wallowed in that sin for, for a time or two. Uh, and so I have, to, I have to check myself. I must check myself because if I don't, I will make that, I will make that error often. Uh, so that was interesting. You know, they're ca- kind of, you know, they're not calling me out on it, but I have to, I have to listen to that message. Uh, but what was interesting at the end, they had a should real quickly about that particular topic. When prioritizing feedback, prioritize higher higher order feedback over lower order order feedback. That is, if you are overloading them with feedback, then rein yourself in by by limiting the comments that you're going to make and making the comments that you choose to give about about content and organization and style and 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 flow as opposed to syntax and spelling and grammar and format if you if you only have so many you only have so much for them to think about before they become exhausted and then all of your feedback is useless if you push them to a point of working memory capacity then they don't have any space to process they're that you've then shifted them into system one heuristic thinking you are forcing them into local you are forcing them into local execution of the feedback if, so even if you have great global conceptual feedback to give if that is drowned amongst all of the tiny stuff, you're pushing them into a local format. Like you, you can, your feedback can push them into less effective feedback mechanisms. That's one thing that was consistent with these. They always limited the feedback comments to 10. They just categorically limited it to 10. Now, I don't know. I don't know. I'd like to know, is there, is there a sweet spot for feedback comments on papers? Is there a ratio for comments per page? Like, it, do we know? Do we have a, a, like, I know that everyone's working memory is a little bit variable and it changes as we age, but do, is there research about how much feedback is too much feedback? We know that there is too much feedback. Do we know that, Ralph? That could be out there. Yeah, I don't know that. I would imagine back to their comment of, is it, you, you spelled receive wrong or your imagery is flat, improve imagery. Like those are really different comments. Uh, so I I don't know and I am skeptical about reducing the complexity of that variable. 
make better mistakes. How was the beer? The beer, this was a good beer. I have no complaints. And yet, I think I'm only going to drink one. I it's a, it's a big beer. It is a big beer. And it's heavy. It's so it sweet. Heavy. It's the sweetness that is, makes it hard for me to process. Like, I'm dr- I've drank it slowly. I did not. It's many beers I can pick up speed as I get going. This was not one that I could pick up speed. It's too heavy. Agreed. Yeah. It is not an easy drinking beer. This is not an easy drinking beer. Uh but man, I like it. I, I know the sweetness that you don't like is the sweetness that I like. It's a it's interesting because we drink so many stouts that I would have imagined like I yeah, there's just another beer. I'll drink it. It's fine. I like it. It's fine. It's not acceptable. That's not acceptable. I, I like we've I hear you, Ralph. It's okay. Let's go with mine. First taste impressions, party time. Thick, rich, sweet, hint of spice. Full-bodied, lingering tingle. I do taste a syrupy deliciousness that I love. Thanks for tuning in for yet another month. We hope your spring is going well. We hope you find the show valuable. Remember to check in with us at twopintplc.com with suggestions and feedback. This is better as a community, and we want to read the things that are valuable to you. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.